0: Hi everybody, it's Les McEwan here, President and CEO of Predictable Success and we're back with another in the Predictable Success interview series in which we talk with people who themselves and or with others achieved that state that we call Predictable Success and today I'm absolutely delighted and privileged to be talking to someone who's become a good friend and someone I've had an opportunity to work with over the last couple of years is David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool. Welcome David.
1: Thank you so much Les, it's a real
0: pleasure to talk again. Super to be talking to you again, Uh, David. What I'd love to do to start off with is um, just for the – I imagine there's only a very few of our listeners who don't know who the Motley Fool is, but I'd love for you to take a little bit of time and just share with us what the Motley Fool is, what it does. And um, for knowing our audience, as I do, I I know what they'd love to hear as well as maybe the founding story. How did you and your brother come up with the idea and what was the path that led you there? Hmm. Well, the purpose of our company
1: is to help the world invest better, Um, and we're in our 20th year as a business, 2013. We started as a newsletter. It was just a traditional print newsletter. As it turns out, it was for our parents' friends, less because they were the only ones who would pay us $48 a year back then for our (laughs) our thinking, uh, supporting a a small, fledgling business. But uh, as the Internet – well, really, before the Internet, online services began to – expand and become something that consumers were using, you know, that was dial-up free, world Wide Web. Um, we started as paying customers on America Online and a few of the others, started to just answer questions um, from people who were asking about investing and then stock picking, my passion. And so we began just as paying customers on AOL to answer other people's questions. And at a certain point, we caught the attention of AOL. They happen, I live in Washington, D.C., AOL happens to have been based back then about 30 minutes from where I live. And so we started a relationship with them, and they said, would you guys like to open up The Motley Fool, this newsletter for your parents' friends with a funny name, would you like to open that up on America Online? And AOL was still so early on, you know, there were barely keywords or channels back then for America Online. So we, I would say we got our foot in the door early and we 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 really um grew a lot those first five years. I certainly won't go through the boring history of our company, but I will mention just the great benefit of having America Online during its golden age growing um, mightily. And so we all of a sudden found we could hire a third person. The brothers could hire, you know, a friend and then another friend. And all of a sudden, you know, we had grown to a few hundred employees with Silicon Valley Venture Capital and all of the um best and worst things about the internet go go era of the late 1990s um and you know just to take it all back through to today um we are a, a I think we're a decent mid-sized business um with uh, good cash flow um a wonderful mission uh and in particular uh, a worldwide community people who also say I'm a fool uh oh, and and as as people just trying to help each other make better investing
0: decisions and you and your brother, Tom, started uh, the business when you were relatively young. Were you both um, were you, uh, finance investment nerds as kids? I mean, was, were you riding around at 13 years of age on your bicycle reading 10K statements and that type of thing? <laughs> we had a, a dad who had, who had
1: raised us on the stock market. So even though Tom and I both uh, majored in English as That's an true. undergraduate major, and neither of us um, achieved any graduate distinction, um We had had a father who, from our early teens, was coaching us and teaching us about the stock market. And, you know, for us to have a dad who talked about how you should become a part owner of the companies whose products and services you like, you know, we would go into the grocery store and he'd say, hey, kids, look, chocolate pudding. We own a little bit of the company, just a few shares, of course, that makes that chocolate pudding. Let's go get more chocolate pudding. It made it a wonderful, um, fun introduction to at that point, you know, American life, where an ownership culture, you can become a part owner of the companies uh, themselves. And so a lot of games and numbers and what stocks could do, I always loved baseball statistics, and it was easy for me to parlay my interest in that right over into looking at the stock market. Um, so even though we have no formal training or background in investing, we have, well, I'm 46, so that means I've been thinking about the stock market for more than 30 years now. And that right. probably explains why we got to where we where we've gotten so far.
0: <laughs> well, <clears throat> you'll know, uh, David, from many of the discussions that you and I've had over the last couple of years that I'm a, a business model nerd, and and what I, intrigues me is how businesses themselves make money. And when you start a business the way you and Tom did, uh, you're really taking on two things. One is the the action, the activity itself. In your case, helping people with their investment advice, but the other thing that you're taking on is running a business, and often we are not conscious of that for the first while. You know, we just want to do this thing, and then before you know it, you've got a business on your hands. Tell tell us, share with with us a little bit about your journey uh, as a business owner and manager. Looking back now, is it what you thought it would be, or has it been a very different journey? It has definitely been baptism by fire, and
1: it's a lot of building the plane as you fly it as it's right. often said. Um, so I, I would say there's a there's a Warren Buffett quotation that no doubt you've seen when you visit us in Fool HQ, Les, uh, that's in our Buffett conference room. And this is the definitive Buffett quotation for me anyway. And it's, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman, and a better businessman because I'm an investor, said Buffett. And I think there is a really important holistic duality of doing – well at business, thinking about what works in business, and then taking that and making that inform your decisions as an investor. Uh, We think everybody should own at least one stock. I realize a lot of people are in funds or they don't really feel like they understand or want to deal with the stock market or their own savings. But for us, um, we love the stock market because it's our opportunity to just become a part owner of businesses that we admire. So as business people ourselves, our own Professional expertise as entrepreneurs helps us select stocks and, conversely, looking at great companies, constantly asking why did that company win and that company lose and what is it about their cultures or the people or the business models because we're also business model nerds. For example, a lot of the world transitioned away from um, the DVD, which is what people were renting from Blockbuster. But I actually think it's as much a business model story where Netflix – brought a subscription business model, low-key, no late fees, into a a business that traditionally had been all about having to physically drive yourself over and back and pay late fees on one-off transactions. So um, there's a lot more to say about so many different companies, but that act of thinking about what works for other companies Mm. as an investor can help us with our own businesses uh, inject some of that DNA into what we're doing. So... It's that duality, that Buffett quote that really is so key to our thinking. And, yes, I I don't know – I don't think I want to waste time on this fun podcast by talking through the business model (laughs) evolutions that we've gone through. But we've had kind of three different business models in our 20 years, and it it partly tells our story. Uh, But but I'll only go there if you want to tease
0: it out. Oh, I'd love to to hear what the three are. I mean, I've, I've had a little bit of transparency to that. Um, and I know our folks would love to hear it. So, so tell us, sure. here's the 30,000-foot level. Okay, and I'll give it real quick.
1: Uh, our first business model was essentially we were an America Online content provider, and people back then were paying by the hour. I know you remember it, Les. I do. We I, were got paying the $3. I got the CDs, yeah. There you go, a lot of them. And people were paying about three fifty an hour to be online, dial-up at that time. And if they came to our site on America Online, then they would be paying us, 10% of that money, AOL would take $0.35 cents per hour spent on our site and pay it out to us. Right. And so that was our first model. It was, it was kind of a content provider, but it was direct one-to-one getting paid for the time that people spent. So we were trying to create the most engaging site imaginable on America Online. Our second business model was when America Online went from per hour to um, flat V. So all of a sudden, we were all paying America Online you know, $20 a month. And at that point, if you think about what the Motley pool meant for AOL, it was a very strange turn of events because we had been on the cover of Fortune magazine. We had been a great example of the new wave of entertainment companies and media companies, and we had been creating a really exciting site to be online. All of a sudden, when people are only paying AOL $20 flat fee a month, and America Online is paying your telecommunications costs per minute. Right. For customers who are now spending 100 hours at the Motley Fool, that represented a net cost to AOL. It was no longer a huge asset. And so we became very unpopular at America Online. They began to kind of cut off our links. They had taken part in ownership, a small minority interest in our business. But at that point, we were forced out to the World Wide Web, where we we also had to create for free uh, the Motley Fool, so a huge shift, free site model. Um, was that second one. And in a lot of ways, it was good because it got us out there. We were writing some best-selling books through Simon & Schuster. Uh, We had a radio show. We had our national syndicated newspaper column, which we still have today. Um, So we had all those ways of reaching people. But in the end, we were driving them to a site where they were just paying nothing unless they clicked on an ad next to one of our stock picks. And that's how we would get paid all of a sudden. And so our customer then was our advertiser, it was not our user or our reader, and that was a very strange shift for us because I don't think we're very good at pleasing advertising companies. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, so that was number two. And then number three, um, coming out of some of the wreckage of the end of the dot-com era, you remember the NASDAQ losing 70% of its value in two years, we had to pull a major shift to our business model at that point, and we got to where we are today, which is mm. Subscription. Direct payment from people who are using our advice and our services and a wonderful business model because as you know, a fellow nerd and junkie of good business models, you know, subscription model replaces itself pretty substantially from one year to the next. So you can start to say, well, if we, if we please Sally or Jim, you know, Sally or Jim will re-up the next year and we can start to project that forward and we can work as hard as possible to make sure our services are relevant and useful to Sally and Jim, so that they will want to subscribe for five years or more. Right, and that's the business model we've been operating right. off of today, and that's the one that fits us like uh, to a T, like a good glove, because it right, has exactly. the life yeah, of our we, membership.
0: Right, and I, I get that sense of the fit of the business model to your culture uh, a lot at the moment, and I want to come to the foolish culture in a minute or two. But one thing I'd love to ask you about is this. I remember very, very well. I remember being inordinately impressed by your very early marketing, and, and you and Tom really played up the fool side of things, and you were, seemed to be in the cover of everything for a while, and it was a great piece of work, mm-hmm. but I remember thinking, I'll be blunt and, and share this with you, I remember thinking at the time, David, that's never going to be sustainable, and the reason was this was because it was two brothers uh, running the same business, and, I, and I've got a... a uh, I, I've got an opinion that that co-founders in and of themselves typically um, Don't work out usually and when they're family It's even harder But you and Tom have made a real success of this and I'd love to just hear a little bit about How do you split the work? You know, what do you do and what does he do and uh, how long has it taken you to get that? Right in, in terms of just the oversight and management of the business So just a great question um, You know, I I
1: think for us, um, there hasn't been one approach. I mean, we are now in our 20th year of business. Uh, For the last five years, Tom has been the CEO of our company. Um, I am uh, a very active presence in a number of contexts for us, but I have no direct reports. So Tom, at present, has had the organization reporting to him, and it's worked well. We've had an excellent five years. Um, Before that, uh, we've had variously... um, trial by committee, or I should say management by committee for a bunch of years. We also had um, a hired outside CEO for a few years. And, you know, those first few years as as entrepreneurs, I I wouldn't say anybody was running anything. So over 20 years, we've had lots of different evolutions. And I would say we're very likely to continue evolving from here. Um, So I, I think it ends up less that We didn't make it a family business, and we didn't make it about the brothers. It's natural if you're covering us, if you're Smart Money Magazine or CNBC, Mm -hmm. you might be talking about the brothers or have the brothers on TV or interviewed. But the reality is from early on, we've been trying to build a great organization. And so trying to, in a way, downplay um, ourselves in order to, you know, these days I take a lot of pride because over the last year, on CNBC and Bloomberg TV and the Wall Street Journal and others, I think we've had 30 or 40 people quoted or interviewed uh, from our organization. We have we have about 260 employees, so you know more than a tenth of our organization today is out there getting quoted in the media. So maybe in contrast to some other you know ways to run this business, we're not trying to be a celebrity or personality driven entity. We truly are trying to create an amazing culture to work for, a place where a lot of people now have worked for 10 years or more move moved their families uh, to Virginia where we're based in Alexandria. Um, so I think it's really less in the end of the focus on the purpose of what we're doing rather than on our family or on ourselves.
0: Right. And and that culture aspect, uh, David, is, is what I'd like to move to because I've had the privilege of uh, being in um, uh, Full HQ quite a number of times now. you know, I've met with all of your top people on a number of occasions. Um, You've given me the privilege of speaking to an all staff. I've been to one of your huddles uh, that you have on a monthly basis, and the culture uh, is probably the strongest internal culture that I've worked with in the last two decades. It's very vibrant, um, and it's a, a, a very unusual culture, and I and I'd want to hear you maybe share a little bit about that with us. And I, w- I want to hang it on a, a, a something that's obvious as soon as you hear it, but it, it's counterintuitive. You talk about being foolish. You talk about the foolish way, how to best be a fool, and of course that's playing the Motley Fool. But it also means some very specific things to you, and I'd love it if you just share with us, you know, what, what makes the Motley Fool internally, culturally, the organization, it is, as it is, the, the organization that it is. What do you place emphasis on what's important to you?
1: Well, thank you very much, Les. That, that, that was,
0: there was a compliment in there that I,
1: I deeply appreciate. Um, I, I, I think that it starts with our name. And, you know, we kind of picked our name um, out of Shakespeare. And, right. and we were just – it was a lark at the time. Again, it was a newsletter for our parents' friends. So, but, right. you know, the Molly Fool name, you know, our appreciation of the court jesters who could tell the king or queen the truth. Without getting their head lopped off, and by by mixing in good humor throughout, and you know, a world, a financial world, I think where there needs to be a lot more truth telling. I'm happy to say, in 20 years now, there's a great deal more transparency today, and fewer destructive financial advisor relationships today than when we started. Um, When we started, brokers were getting paid based on trades, and we're trying to get you to trade as much as possible so he or she could make money at the end of the day. Um, There was, you know. Okay. you couldn't listen to companies conference calls on our radio show last somewhere in the late 1990s we had a call-in campaign to get Starbucks to open up its quarterly conference calls so that investors could hear the CEO and that was something Starbucks was not doing at the time I'm happy to say within three days of our call-in campaign Starbucks relented this sounds like ancient history now that every single company's conference call is listenable for free online today right. but so that 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 love of you know, telling the king or queen the truth and the importance of that, I think it starts there. Your question was about our culture. Um, I'm going to throw out four things real quick. If you want to ask me about any of them, we can talk more about them. But, um, you know, uh, our our core values and specifically one of our motley, one of our core values, which is called your motley, is a fun thing about our culture. We have an internal learning university we call Fool You, which we could talk about. We have had wonderful people in to speak to our company, you being one of those less, and that's an important um, kind of conference series that we have um, all year round where we learn littles errand, which is a fun little game that we play at the end of each of our monthly huddles where we all all hands meeting as a company. so um, we can talk about any of those if you like I'm putting that forward as examples of kind of cultural um, institutions at in our company that we've kind of built up. Like those ancient cities, you kind of build it up over the years and decades, and whatever keeps working, you keep doing, and so those are some examples.
0: Well, the the thing that has struck me consistently, uh, David, and uh, just in terms of a little bit of uh, perspective from from an outsider's point of view, you know, I get to see the inside of a lot of organizations as part of the privilege of what I do, and um, most organizations can show you a side of them that's pretty impressive. The thing that really strikes me about The Motley Fool is that that commitment to culture goes the whole way through. I've met your folks in every possible type of environment, individually, in small groups and in large groups. And it doesn't matter what way you slice or dice it. As you said earlier, the folks that work for you are very loyal and they're very committed. What do you you think of those four things that you listed and, and, and of anything else? What is it draws that commitment out? Yeah, you know, I think of those four, um, maybe I'll highlight sort
1: of uh, Fool You, our, our internal learning university, because the, we, we learned this from Pixar. Pixar, there's a great story that Pixar tells. Pixar was one of my stock picks, by the way. A tragedy for me when Disney bought them. Not so tragic because we still own the Disney shares and Disney's done pretty well, but we really love Pixar as an independent public company and a stock that we were holding for the long term. But one of the things Pixar talks about is how they invest in their people. And the old story goes that the Pixar uh, uh, CEO pulls up to the Disney CEO at a bar. This is a mostly true story. And the Disney CEO says, you know, we're all about ideas. That's what we're about at Disney. And we need – our our next big movie needs to be this meet this, you know, because we need – that's what we need. We need to have the big idea that that touches off our business. And the Pixar CEO essentially says, we couldn't disagree more. We believe that any movie – is actually 10,000 ideas. Every camera angle you choose, every line of dialogue, all of those are ideas. And so the only way to succeed in this environment going forward is to have great people. Because when you have great people, they make the 10,000 decisions that make it possible. And so out of that, Pixar started its own internal university. And we had the head of Pixar, the dean of that university, come speak to us some years ago. And we realized how important it would be to create an internal learning organization within our company. So if you're at the Motley Fool today, you might have a class at 10 o'clock this morning, and it might be on business models 101, or it might be on um, how to pick better teams for March Madness this March, or it's a motley assemblage of different topics. And who are our teachers? The answer is our teachers are our employees. Might be a VP, might be our new receptionist. You don't know who's going to be teaching these things because it's, any, it's open to all. And then our learners are the people who simply want to take that course or learn that. And these aren't semester long. In a lot of cases, they might just be one-off. Sometimes they are longer form, though. We have students who go on an 18-month learning journey and graduate from our university. And we've just graduated our third class. Um, so we've been doing this for about four or five years now. But I I think if you're hearing me then, you're hearing that teaching and learning are just critical aspects of our corporate culture, and it really is – it runs right through the company, right? In a sense, everyone is involved in some way, shape, or form. So that would be an example of, I guess, what you're talking about.
0: And has the – I know we met um, first, David, whenever uh, my first book, Predictable Success, had just come out, and I'd love to have you share – uh, whether or not, and if so, high the predictable success synergist model has helped in that development internally. You know, I, I have to say, Les, um,
1: I first heard about you, um, when you did an interview on David Allen's Getting Things Done um, podcast. And I enjoyed your perspective so much that I went right out and bought what at that time was your new book, Predictable Success. And, you know, that was again, four, four years, four or five years ago. And, uh, just, your framework for predictable success and the stages that companies go through um resonated with me on two different levels, the first being as a business person myself, as an entrepreneur, as somebody that I could look in at my own business. And what I loved about your book, Les, was that I could look at where I thought our company was, but more importantly, I could know the actions or best actions that we could take to get us where we needed to be if we weren't where we wanted to be. So I would say the 30,000-foot level of looking at anyone's business, and then right down there at the ground level, knowing what to do if things need to be done to get that business into better shape, um, resonated with me on that level first as, as a business person. Second, though, um, as an investor, um, I really enjoy your framework because framework I, I look at other people's companies, and I ask, is that company on the treadmill? Like, where is Microsoft today, for example?
0: Or we might ask,
1: you know, where is a company like Netflix today, which I mentioned earlier? So it's a really fun, I mean, in a way, I can't really know those organizations that well because I'm like you, left. I don't get to go in and work <laughs> with different companies, you know, um, every week. But I do, these days, the Internet makes it possible for us all to get to know companies much better. You, you can look at Glassdoor, where employees are putting up reviews. You can see videos of the CEO giving interviews on Bloomberg. You know, the list goes on and on of the ways you can really get to know a company even if you're not there. And so I've used the framework as well as an investor, that Buffett line again. I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman and vice versa. Um, So I've really appreciated the predictable success work, and I continue to reread the book.
0: Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that very much, David. I must say um, there are are three uh, people – I'll not embarrass the other two – because I don't have their permission to do it right now, but there are three people who uh, know and use the predictable success model. Uh, who I know when I'm going to talk, when I'm slated to go talk to them, I'm going to learn something uh, because they ask me questions I've never been asked before about the use of the model. And You're one of those people, and I remember whenever we uh, I, again I don't, I don't want to break confidence about the Motley Fool, but I remember we did do a very detailed look the Visionary Synergist Operator Processor mix within the organization. And we had all of your folks uh, find out what their uh, style is. And uh, I, you brought me back in to go through an analysis of that. And I came out of that half day knowing more about my own model than when I went in, and that was because of the degree to which you and many of your colleagues have really invested themselves in making the best use of it. So it's been a, a, a mutually profitable uh, relationship in that regard, and I, and I have that to thank you for. Um, in, in closing, David, what, what are the challenges ahead for Motley Fool? What are, what are you working on now that's new, fun, and exciting?
1: Well, I think, you know, we're, we're at a stage I, – I would say we're kind of in a whitewater stage right now as a business. Um, okay. that's that's within your framework kind of back where we are, and so it it's interesting because the challenge therefore is to scale and to scale in an ever growing more complex environment right and you know i think for for most growth companies and that's definitely the stage where we've been for um probably about ten years or so i'd say now um that's th- those are the kinds of questions you have to answer so for for us you know um, I think a phrase that you may have used, Les, this is – I probably steal a lot from you and forget that I'm stealing it from you. But, you know, being in this, um, a machine for decision-making, for good, effective decision-making, building the corporation into being – I love gizmos and machines and robots and things that – systemic things that do stuff on their own. And um, so I think where we are as a business today, we need to add a little bit more process in, and make ourselves a little bit more of a machine as we go from maybe – again, we're not in any hyper-growth at all, but, you know, we hired 50 in the last year net, so we went from 210 to – actually, 220 to 270. Um, you know, as you – Hit across, that – you hit that magical number of 250, you start to not recognize, you know, everyone's name, or yep. you start to recognize not everyone's face. So it starts to become larger, and that's always going to be a big challenge, so – I would say those are our biggest challenges as a company. Um, Where I don't think things are challenged, often people think that they would be challenged, is just navigating the stock market. You know, a lot of people thought that the fiscal cliff would crash our market or thought that, you know, the banking system and its problems would make it so no one should buy stock in 2009. You know, but as it turns out, you know, the stock market has almost doubled. It has actually more than doubled from its lows in 2009. And we continue to find great companies and companies that we want to be part investors of. We're not traders. And so I would say that, that that's not the challenging part. I think that, that we're very good at helping people invest better. But our our near-term challenges are just scaling, complexity.
0: Well, it's it's been an absolute uh, privilege to be allowed to have been part of and uh, some transparency and visibility into how you and Tom have managed that over the last number of years, um, as just been very clear, uh, I'm sure, in this call, I'm, I'm an enormous fan, and I just uh, recommend to everybody, uh, all of our listeners, if you don't know um, David and Tom's uh, business, if you don't know The Motley Fool, go to foolcott.com today. Uh, check it out. They're just the best in the business. David, I hope we can get you back in a couple of years from now and tell us how you've uh, navigated that um, act of scaling. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Les. Thank you for all your work. I know that everyone listening
1: to it today is so pleased and grateful for your contributions, not not over the years, but in some cases I know over the decades. But I'm happy to say for the last five years or so, you've enriched my business and investing life. Keep doing the good thing. Thank you, Les. Thank you.